Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with director Todd Haynes about his Velvet Underground documentary, and we're reviewing new albums by Illuminati Hotties and Ray Black. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, Jim and I have some thoughts on the Velvet Underground documentary. Greg, I do not even want to talk over that song. I always want to just get sucked into the dark, magical world of the Velvet Underground. I can't believe it's 2021, and we are only now seeing the first serious documentary about uh, one of the most influential groups in the history of popular music. Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. I think part of it, you know, I I think you and I as Velvet's fanatics uh you know since day one (laughs) since we were kids basically is we wanted to get everything we could get our hands on and it seems like every band that you care about is over documented like Mm -hmm. there's so much out there and yet there is so little uh footage of the velvet underground in their prime performing that it's kind of a crime and i think that has limited the idea that uh you know there, there could be a documentary on the band, right. because where do you start in terms of footage? Right. Well, and you know, the irony there is that uh, Andy Warhol was their sponsor, their mentor, their champion, and uh, Warhol was never not carrying a camera around in those days. Well, yeah, that's the weird part, turned right? on everybody yeah. and all the... Todd Haynes seems to have done an extraordinary job in turning uh, up... Every millimeter of film footage of the Velvets, that is one of the treats of this movie. Um, You know, the accolades, the hosannas online among, and I don't know, you know, you and I maybe are just friends with every Velvet fan, (laughs) you know, within an 800-mile radius. Um, People are worshiping this movie because there has been nothing earlier, and there is some tremendous footage. I have a couple problems with the movie, though. I can't imagine why. <laughs> well, no, it is. Look, it is a treat. No, I have some issues too. But it is ahead. a treat, but I think it would better have been framed as um, the Velvet Underground, the making of the first album, because that's where yeah. it's strongest. The first hour, at least, focuses on uh, the milieu around Andy Warhol's factory and, fascinatingly, where these guys came from. The footage of the young, the baby, John mm. Cale, yeah. you know, playing uh, uh, playing classical music and appearing on a game show mm-hmm. and, and footage of Lou Reed with his early garage bands. Mm-hmm. That stuff is fascinating, and it really does help bring a new perspective on uh, how these individuals came together, what each of them contributed to this unique mix, and then you bring Warhol into the picture, uh, what Warhol did for them. Um, you know. But then it seems like the final three officially released albums are, are given rather short shrift to say nothing of all the music that was made um, that was unreleased for years mm-hmm. until the VU anthology. You know, and hey, I'm such a freak. I would even have liked to see 
two minutes on the post Lou Reed Velvet Underground. Oh, yes, that band continued without Lou Reed, yeah, amazingly. Right. Anyway, large chunks of this band's uh, short history are left out of the film, and yet what we get about the first album is fantastic. I would have liked more on Tom Wilson, African-American producer who had worked with Bob Dylan, who mm-hmm. had worked with Simon and Garfunkel, produces and champions and crafts the amazing sound of that first uh, Velvet's album. Now, yeah, yeah, Andy Warhol's listed as producer, but that was just, you know, to introduce the band to the world. The guy who actually ran the tape was Tom Wilson. Yeah, well, he did that first track that they put out as a single in, yes. in, in 66, a year ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, it's an arty movie about an arty band. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. Todd Haynes is always going to, like, leave you kind of, you know, like, oh, my God, what was that? It was, yeah. you know, he's always kind of... Uh, pushing the envelope about what a film can be, um, you know, your expectations are inevitably going to be a little bit uh, rejiggered, if not completely upset. Um, and yet, I love the film. Um, yeah. I, I love the fact that he spent so much time on the uh, the development of the band and the scene that they grew out of that that confluence of art and music and film and literature that could have only happened in maybe one place in the world in that time. You yeah, know, New, New York, York City, then and there. You know, early 60s through mid 60s. I mm-hmm. mean, that fostered the Velvets as much as anything. It allowed that to happen and I'm thankful for that perspective. I, I don't think um, you know, my knowledge of that particular period of time and in, in, in the way it influenced the Velvets was nearly as deep as my knowledge of the music, but I'm glad we have that now. You mentioned those Warhol films. I think he makes art out of Warhol's art. He yeah, turns that yeah. into his own way of describing how intimate the band was with all of the art scenes that were happening concurrently at that time and how in many ways the Velvets were the embodiment of what was going on. Great use of split screens, of collage, of, of all the methods that Warhol was yeah, employing. and that's what Haynes is so great, great at. Um I also feel like that Ludlow Street apartment, you know, Kale, (laughs) John Kale, rather than Lou Reed, is really the center of the movie in a lot of ways for Haynes, probably because Kale Kale is is still alive to tell tell the story. But that Ludlow Street apartment, when you think about the band morphing from the Dream Syndicate with Kale in there with Tony Conrad and Lamont Young Mm -hmm. into, oh, this guy Lou Reed's here now and and Sterling Morrison and this film director Jack Smith, who's part of the Warhol crowd. So Kale was really kind of the HQ In- of the whole thing. Well, and, and for I people get that who, part. who don't know what that means, you know, Kale was steeped in the avant-garde classical right. world. And Reed is coming from doo-wop and garage rock. Mm-hmm. Sterling's his buddy. Right. And Maureen just kind of, Maureen Tucker, the first great female drummer really in rock history, kind of just gets pulled into it. Yeah. You know, and, but, and contributes something that cannot be matched. Well, she was incredible in terms of, and she was the perfect drummer for that band. Yes. Um, you know, I also appreciated very much uh, having Jonathan Richmond's perspective. As a super fan. I think he brought it back to the sound. There yeah. was so much made about Warhol. And the, and the film kind of like cast, you know, kind of a little side eye at, at, at some of that. Like, oh, wait a minute. The, 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 the sound was the thing. It and Richmond sort of brings it back yeah. to how revolutionary the band's music was. He, he's important, and Danny Fields was important. Yeah. An empathetic figure who understood the band, and Lou probably better than any yeah. person on the planet outside of you know Lou himself. And also understood the gay milieu yes. in New York. Uh, Fields would go on to manage the Ramones, a great character in rock history himself. Here's my other gripe, though. Uh, it's great 
great to have those super fans perspective, Richmond and Fields. Um, but, you know, every uh, critic in the world hated the Velvets. Nobody appreciated them. Nonsense. No. Ellen Willis. Mm-hmm. You know, the pioneering female rock critic in New York, the New Yorker's first rock critic, right. you know, calls her, her collection uh, beginning to see the light yeah. after the Velvet Song. Right. There, and Richard Goldstein is on the liner notes. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there were always, um, you know, brave critics saying, everybody is saying this is noise and decadence and, and you know, you're going to lose your soul and your hearing if you go <laughs> after this band, right? But there were critics saying, Oh, no, no, this is the future. And what's more, they were saying this is capital A art. Above yeah. and beyond Warhol, this is the first time rock is really, not Sgt. Pepper's, the Velvets are the first time that rock is really uh, standing as museum-quality art. Well, and I think an interesting point that Kale makes in the movie is that, you know, they were the, the Velvets were famously, like, if you're going this way, we're going that way. They were yeah. repelled by the mainstream, yeah. by yeah. convention. So, and then they said, eventually we, we pushed everybody away. Yeah. We were just left with ourselves. And then yeah. we started fighting with each other. And yeah. that broke up the band, really. And, and you know, Haynes' disappointment is palpable. Kale yeah. leaves the band. I'm no longer as much interested in them. As you mentioned, yeah. the fact that the Doug Yule era was sort of not really mentioned at all. Kind you of know, the third and by. fourth albums yeah. are incredible records. They are great Very records. Very different from the Kale era records, but incredible in their own right. Um, but you know what? It, it's not a perfect film, but it's also a great film. And it's probably the only one we're ever going to get. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the Velvet Underground documentary? Let us know what you thought of it by leaving a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or start a conversation with other listeners at our Facebook group. Coming up, we talk with the film's director, Todd Haynes. Then later, we're going to review new albums by Illuminati Hotties and Ray Black. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. You can't help me, not you. We're back. We've shared our thoughts on the Velvet Underground documentary, and now we have an interview with its director, Todd Haynes. Film fans are going to know Haynes as a dyed-in-the-wool music fan. His 2007 film, I'm Not There, had six different actors playing Bob Dylan, including Heath Ledger and Kate Blanchett. His 1998 film, Velvet Goldmine, explored the glam rock world, and his very first project to gain notice, Superstar, told the story of the Carpenters using Barbie dolls. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you heard that right, folks. All that to say, he has a deep love of music, but until now, had never made a documentary. Jim DeRogatis got a chance to talk to Todd Haynes about it. I started talking with Todd, uh, Mr. Cott, about the relative dearth of footage that exists of the Velvets uh, performing and how that must have been a little difficult. I gather you had every millimeter of film available. I think we did. I think we, and we also unearthed some stuff that you see later in the film of them with Doug Ewell yeah. performing outside and that, that sort of grainy video footage of them, which I don't think has been in circulation. But for the most part, we, we, I think we have everything that we could get our hands on. We put the word out for fans to try to unearth anything that they might have in their attics or, you know, yeah, yeah. and, uh, and you, and you just, cross your fingers and hope that stuff will surface while you're still cutting. But uh, for the most part, we knew where to look. And it was mostly in the Warhol, obviously in all of the Warhol films. Sure. There's a lot of Warhol films and there's a lot of stuff, or the Ron Namath film, The Velvet Underground, that's shot in 
Chicago mm -hmm. um, during the exploding plastic inevitable era um, had images of the band in it that were rare, rarely seen. And there was some, you know, so we found little slivers of things that had never really been seen before. Yeah. It must have been a challenge. I imagine you wished you had uh, uh, 10 full concerts to choose from. I don't know if I did. I mean, I, I can't think of anything better than having the films of Andy Warhol as the way that this band will forever be record known mm. and imagined in, in, our, in our minds and visualized. The more you have, the less meaningful it is. And also, this is shot on 16 millimeter at this at this utterly specific time and place where they all resided. And so the scarcity of it and the beauty of it and the, the sort of uh, visual um, experimentation that was going on at the level of how to visualize, not just Andy Warhol's classic locked off frames, but the Danny Williams footage shot yeah. for Andy where he really experiments with aperture and frame rate and zooms and, you know, and speeds uh, of the, of the film are just like nothing else that you could, you could dream of for having a band on film. And, and yeah. so it keeps them in their, it keeps them in their moment in a way that's really extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's very much uh, of a piece, you know, I love the way yeah. you incorporated stuff like the empire state footage and, uh, you know, it made sense, uh, why Andy was, uh, fascinated with this rock band. They were part of yeah. him. He was part of them. Um, you've always had this fantastic, uh, sense of, uh, music in your films, uh, superstar and velvet goldmine and I'm not there. Is this one that was always on your wish list to tackle? Not, not really, you know, like I would never have wanted to try to make a fictional film about the Velvet Underground. Mm -hmm. And I never really would have, ex you know, thought, oh, I want to make my first documentary about the Velvet Underground. It hadn't really occurred to me until it was asked of me by Universal uh, Music Group and who, who control Verve and having it come through Laurie Anderson and all of that. But clearly, Velvet Underground, this is sort of the prequel to Velvet Goldmine, um, mm -hmm. my film Velvet Goldmine. And that film, you know, people kind of almost misappropriate the Kurt Wilde character who looks a lot like Iggy in style, who is sort of, you know, uh, create a partner to, or, on, or, you know, a creative project for the Brian Slade character in the film, mm -hmm. sort of inspired by David Bowie. But really that's, that story owes more to Bowie and Reed's relationship. Mm. Um, and the way Reed became a way for Bowie to show the appreciation he had for that music and how his, his moment in creating Ziggy and the whole glam experience was wholly indebted to this absolutely specific moment in the U.S. with the Velvet yeah. Underground, and that Iggy sort of followed in that spirit. Sure. Well, one of the things that surprised uh, Greg and me was uh, the light you were able to shine on the pre-Velvet days. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, John Cale on television as a really young kid. This is John Cale, 
a composer musician who last week performed in a concert to end all concerts. What was really unusual about this particular concert? Well, the performance took 18 hours. Can any of you guess what Mr. Schenzer's secret then is? He was the only one who lasted in the audience for the full 18 hours. <laughs> the illumination of Lou Reed's uh, garage rock uh, period and uh, yeah, that yeah. stuff was just fascinating. We never thought we'd uh, see anything like that. Were you surprised at uh, having access to that and being able to tell that story? Because you spend a lot of time on the first album and what came before the first album. And uh, as knowledgeable Velvets fans, the argument can be made that the roots of everything that followed were on that first album. So it, it yeah. makes sense. No, no, that was definitely like. Um the plan was to try to really spend our time excavating the sound, the ideas, the origins of this unique group of people who came together with all the sort of sense of the unexpected and the accidental that that sort of put them together. I mean, John Cale being sort of cast by the Pickwick folks to play alongside Lou Reed in the, yeah. you know, the ostrich, right? Yeah. Like, almost like a con, like a, the monkeys being being, you know, completely uh, packaged, prepackaged because of their look. that crazy sort of accident mm -hmm. uh, put these two artists together and ultimately separated them from the rest of the world and let them discover each other's instincts and have each of their backgrounds and each of their mm -hmm. sort of journeys change the other person yeah, and create something that neither of them would have expected from what they had been striving for. Uh, yeah. up till that point. So it's just like, it's a beautiful story of creative combustion and how bands really are more than the sum of their parts, but also how this one owes this unique and incredible relate, you know, story to that relationship, that the, the intimacy of that relationship. Yeah. Well, you know, so you're talking to two rock critics, or or one half. My partner couldn't couldn't make this uh, uh, chat, uh, so I have to get rock criticy on you for a minute. Um, uh, the film sort of posits, although Jonathan Richman is so wonderfully eloquent and passionate, right? Sort of posits that nobody liked the Velvets in their time, except for this handful of freaky fans. Um, I published Lester Bang's biography in 2000. Mm. It was a labor of love, and one thing that Kale had told me was that. It was as if Lester Bangs was a member of the band that he wrote with such empathy. And, of course, you know, <laughs> Lester was hyperbolic. Uh, all modern music begins with the Velvets, yeah, he wrote. You know, exactly. And yeah. so, so it wasn't like everybody hated him. And, and he met them and saw them for the first time in California. You know, you know the, the, the shorthand is they go to California. They're the antithesis of California. And nobody yeah. liked them in the critical establishment. But not entirely true. Well, no, I don't think, I mean, I think most of the people who are interviewed in our film who were there, and that was my precondition for who would be interviewed in mm. the film. These are people who were blown away 
by what they heard of the Velvet Underground. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really interviewing people from the West Coast or the people who really stood outside this very discreet and very specific cultural community of New York City. But the people who were there, their minds were blown by this band at mm -hmm. the time. Danny Fields, Amy Taubin, you know, these guys, what they heard right then and there changed them forever. And they yeah. never heard anything better. And in fact, Danny Fields will say, the noise of the Warhol spectacular show, the Exploding Plastic Inevitable was a distraction from what was going on musically with this band. Mm. Just like Sister Ray said, suck to me! I love that, you know, because that's, we all think, oh, wow, it was all about the Warhol, you know, project and how that got them going and how great this band looked and all of Andy's films being projected on them on stage and what it must have been like to have been a, be at one of those shows. I still think that's all true, but I love saying, no way, this is really about this music, you know, yeah. and that, and it's the music that Andy Warhol heard when they were playing at the Cafe Bazaar and he said, that music sounds like my films. Mm. I want to produce this band, right? Yeah. And he was worried that the first record would sound too overproduced being done by professionals in the studio, yeah. Andy Warhol. He wanted it to sound raw and crude like his movies looked. So I, I hear you, I, I agree that I think this music was appreciated by the people that mattered at the time. And Lou Reed was just looking for a level of success, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, he was tasting it, but not really feeling it be manifest. I didn't know that about Lou, that he wanted to be a rock star when he was a teenager. Yeah. Or that was part of his. So he had these dual uh, ambitions as an artist that were maybe in conflict. But those conflicts are often what produced the greatest results. Bowie had that too. Bowie wanted to be successful, but he also wanted to experiment and be a trailblazer. And yeah, well, uh, dual, dual, <laughs> dual impulses. Lou probably had 10 impulses simultaneously. Yeah. Anybody exactly. who's ever interviewed him, Greg and I have had several chats. You know, sometimes you're getting uh, the Borscht Belt comedian, and sometimes you got right. uh, the flamethrower in your face. If you were yeah. not going to talk about decibels and hertz and the frequency of a guitar <laughs> pedal, you know, and I, I, I remember saying to him once, Todd, you know, it's like, Lou, man, I'm a drummer. I'm not a musician. I, you know, if you want to, like, talk to Guitar World, you know? <laughs> and yeah. then he was very sweet after that, you know? Uh, right. But it, it was hard to understand where he was coming from, even to the point where his sister says she's upset with uh, uh, the way uh, people think that his parents were so uh, uh, hard on him. But he was like, but Lou wrote Kill Your Sons. We didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that pain that was obviously so vivid for parents of a teenage son, it wasn't just about his sexual proclivities, that they were concerned about him and wanted him to get help. Yeah. I think that's what she was saying. It's like way more than that. It's not, it's too reductive to just call them 
homophobic sure. or the per- sure. and I think as you say Lou Lou used that Lou liked that narrative that was part of his own mythos you know yeah. um, so I, I I think it's all there but but all of that all that ambivalence and all that pain is in his work it's in his music it's in his yes. lyrics yeah and it was in it from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so the pain that uh, any Velvets fan uh, feels, and especially when you're a journalist or a filmmaker and you get close to the story, is how sad the ending, the parting between mm-hmm. Kale and Reed is. I mean, I got to see those earliest shows of Songs for Drella when it was at St. Anne's mm-hmm. Church a year before right. it went to BAM. And it was just Lou and John on stage. Yeah. And, you know, for a minute there, you got to say, especially John singing in that baritone, you know, this here's a rock band, mm-hmm. we're called the Velvet Underground, you know, in the voice of Andy. Uh, it, it, it was magical. Yeah. And then, of course, they wind up hating each other again. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so true. It's like uh, it's like a romance. It's like it's almost more intense than a romance. The, the kind of intimacy that they felt, you know, like you probably know all this, Jim, because you know so much about them and you've interviewed Lou and which I was never able to do. Yeah. But I would hear tapes that Danny Fields would gave me of and who who. Lou loved and trusted mm-hmm. and he wasn't speaking to a journalist when he was hanging out with Danny. And so it was a whole other side of Lou Reed that you'd hear in these tapes, you know, of them just yeah. chatting and, and Lou kind of talking a mile a minute, like speeding away, but so funny and so sharp and so, and I heard him, I, this one tape of right after hearing the Ramones for the first time before mm-hmm. they cut a record and Lou lost his mind. He was just flipping out at the genius of this band and how it reminded him of everything that drew him into rock and roll to begin with in the most elemental ways. And literally right away he goes, John would go crazy for this. (laughs) You know, and you just, you just get chills because it's the first person he thinks about in moments of discovery and remembering the artistic roots of what he did. And that's where your heart breaks because they kept being drawn back together and then split apart over and over again, as you say. Yeah, yeah. You said Lori was instrumental in bringing you on board, Uh, but we don't hear from Lori. We see that one beautiful picture of them, Coney Island, it looks like, right? (laughs) You said you weren't tempted to talk to anybody who wasn't there. So that you stood by that no matter who it was. Yeah, absolutely. There are too many people. You go on and on and on and on. We didn't interview Hal Wilner. Yeah. We didn't interview um, Sylvia. Yeah. You know, like it was too many people to sort through and decide, oh, who's eligible, who isn't, whose point of view do we you listen to? Or I could go on for years making this movie if I yeah, talked to yeah, everybody yeah. who this band touched after they had ended. But I really, it was an endeavor about locate, and that's why we spent so long in that first hour Mm. tracing the sources of this music, because what I also sort of hoped is that the audience would sort of get lost and almost forget what they were watching. And that when you first heard, when you finally hear the first Velvet's cut with Lou singing Venus and Furs, you're like, oh, right. It all comes together. And that you feel like you just, yeah. And you sort of feel like you discovered it yourself because you've been 
tracing all of the elements that got us to that point. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather with flash girl child in the dark comes in bells. Your servant don't forsake him. Strike your mistress and cure his heart. Uh, you know, a good place to wrap, Todd, might be uh, the sexuality of the Velvets and the liberation for alternative sexuality, right? You know, Lester Bangs wrote, uh, Lou Reed wrote uh, w- with empathy and passion about people for whom nobody else gave a sh- uh, transsexuals, homosexuals, drug addicts, right? And this was the strength of the Velvets. Um, as a, a gay filmmaker, and, and your sexuality uh, has always been present in your films. I mean, Carol, what a beautiful movie. We could talk for hours about that, okay? Um, uh, I wonder, you know, in particular, uh, how that resonated with you and the message that it's okay to be different, which is easier today, of course, than it was in 66, well, yeah, uh, clearly that is all true about the Velvets and the kinds of people that appear in Lou's songs. But I would take it even to a larger place where it wasn't just about gay people or transvestites, as they were called at the time, or, or bisexuals or whatever. It was an ethos uh, that stood by an idea of transgression and deviance and that people who felt that that was where, you know, an experience about the nature of living was going to teach you more than trying to live in the heterosexual mainstream world. Because Mm -hmm. when, you know, they all went to the West Coast, Mary Warrenoff would say they were homophobic. We were homosexual. Now, she didn't mean that she was a lesbian, because she wasn't. But she identified with this set of ideas and a way of looking at the world, of framing the world that was different from the rest of counterculture and had a lot to do with its sexual orientation and, and really you know, important figures like Andy Warhol and Undine and Lou Reed and Danny Fields and so many people who kind of set a tone that was just different. It was even different from the art world in New York City. Yeah. You know, Andy Warhol, he would always be like, how come, you know, um, Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns don't talk to me who are gay? Yeah. And whose yeah. work they, his work he loved. They love Andy Warhol loved. And his friend Day said, It's because you're too swish. You know, you're too overt. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so what Andy Warhol made overt and normal to this culture is what we're talking about. Yeah, the true counterculture of the yeah, time and exactly. still today, one could argue. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. That was great, man. Thank you, Jim, so much. Take care. Take care. What do you think of Todd Haynes' music films? Let us know by leaving a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we've got reviews of Illuminati Hotties and Ray Black. Then we're going to hear some feedback from listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. When I was younger, I wanted to be the black Madonna on stage. Millions of people screaming my name. 
But now I'm older, I can do anything I wanna We've led, getting paid, slaying my lane Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is a little bit of Black Madonna, the lead-off track on Ray Black's debut album, Access Denied. Rita Eckwer, otherwise known as Ray Black, that's B-L-K, capital B-L-K, stands for Building, Living, Knowing, uh, is it a British singer and songwriter who was born in Nigeria and grew up in London. 2016 debut mini-album Dirt put her on the map. In 2017, the very next year, she won a kind of a prestigious prize, the BBC's Sound of 2017 Award. She was the first unsigned artist to win that particular prize. Uh, the following year, 2018, she signed a, a big record deal with the uh, UK branch of Island Records and put out the Empress mini-album. So her career was sort of creeping along. She was putting out these mini-projects. Everybody was waiting for the debut album. Uh, now it's finally here. It took a while. She is now 27 years old. Mm. Not exactly, you know, most uh, most artists are at that age are probably on their third or fourth album by now. Yeah. Uh, she has taken her time to get it out. But here it is. The name of the record, as I mentioned, is Access Denied. It's Ray Black with a song called M.I.A. on Sound of Pinch. Running off with M.I.A. That is M.I.A. from Ray Black's debut album, Access Denied, uh, a guest cameo there from Cash Page as well. Um, Greg, I love this album from the first listen, and my my love of it grew deeper with every subsequent listen. It is it is sensuous, it is angry, it is introspective, it is uh, you know free for all partying. Mm. It is it is a full range of emotions of a young woman of color uh, talking a lot about being a young woman of color. Everyone would tell me I couldn't go the distance. Chocolate skin, you don't fit in. You're a statistic. Uh, was one of the lines in Black Madonna, which is an extraordinarily powerful uh, opening track and single. Um, and then she pumps herself up. Every time I'd be on stage, they go ballistic. <laughs> there is that sort of hip-hop braggadocio. There is the classic uh, soul uh, seduction come on. Uh, there is uh, humor, um, you know, and that voice, that that soprano voice. I love the diversity, the musical uh, backing. We have the touches of Afro pop. We have touches of trap and hip-hop and classic soul uh, and not the overly glossy mainstream kind of R&B there's grit and there's guts here I I uh, uh, I just think she's a fascinating woman with tons of stuff to say and and she has indeed been building living knowing mm. well you know I wish I was a little more enthused about it than you are because I um, I look back on on the records that she did in 2016 and 2018 and you know I, I remember tracks like my hood and Run Run as being really impressive, socially conscious statements by an artist who was not working 
with mainstream production ideas. You know, there was a lot of neo-soul. There was a lot of trip-hop. There was this kind of vibe about it that was um, clearly not talking about mainstream success so much as getting her personal story out and looking at the world that she grew up in. And you think she's getting away from color. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Huh. Uh, you know, the socially conscious things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, Black Madonna, uh, you know, Black Skin, those couple of songs yeah. there where she does reference the, the, some of those themes again. What, what I find a little disappointing about the record, I think the production is a little bit boilerplate. I do hmm. believe, you know, the trap beats. I feel like she's trying to make an Americanized version of what she was doing so well mm. uh, years ago in, in England. Uh, and, and, and obviously trying to cross over a little bit. You know, uh, it's still fairly minimalist, but I do believe that the production has sort of, uh, you know, become a little bit more predictable, a little bit more like other artists in this kind of genre, you know, whereas before she was standing outside of it a little bit. Um, in terms of what she's got to say, I think br- brilliant. I, th- I think she's got things to say. She's talking a little bit more. She's looking a little more inward on this record yeah. than in her past ones, and I think that's a strong thing. Self empowerment themes, th- themes about you know growing out of controversy, out of um, you know people doubting you every step of the way and mm-hmm. saying you can't do this, and saying yeah I can and I am. Seeing me less is cause I'm doing more. If it ain't money, then I hit it all. My mental health can't be compromised. You don't do it for me. You don't do it. Tell me what you're trying to do. And you know those, those are assertive, <laughs> yeah. assertive statements that she's yeah. making in a in a in a very profound way. I just wish the music was as adventurous you know, as she is. It's interesting because I slept on those early singles, and so my point of entry is this album. And I have since gone back to the rest of her catalog. I, but I, I just wonder if it's a matter of where you come in to the world of Ray Black. Um, there's also this sort of narrative here of like a good girl gone bad. Mm. You know, she is reveling a little bit in uh, in being a bad girl here. I'm allowing um, myself to be a bad girl. You know, I don't. Yeah, have I'm to allowing. Be. Yeah. Right. Whereas that wasn't there (laughs) earlier, you know. I know I got what they want. Drip chocolate all on their tongue. So you don't think it's a masterpiece, but you like it, and I just love it. I think she's a terrific artist. I just say that, you know, the bar was set in a, and it's probably just as much me. You know, six months from now, I may have a different viewpoint on this record when I hear it in a club or something like that, when we're we're allowed to go to a club again. What's a club? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. is a little bit of the song Pool Hopping from the new album by Illuminati Hotties, Let Me Do One More. What a name, Illuminati Hotties. It really is a one-person band with uh, people fleshing out the sound. A fascinating woman, Sarah Tudson. Uh, She is a very talented producer who uh, early on in her career, producer-engineer, found herself working with some top-level stars, ranging from uh, Barbara Streisand and Lady Gaga to Coldplay, but probably best known in the indie underground for working with Chick Chick Chick, the three exclamation point Mm. bands. You always love them, Mr. Cott, (laughs) and her good friend Lucy Dacus. 
On her own, Sarah began recording essentially uh, advertisements for herself. Uh, her own music was meant to highlight a demo reel showing her skills uh, behind the mixing board as a producer, as an engineer. Uh, she is now three albums into this career, and there is a lot of anticipation for this new record, I think because of the Lucy Dacus connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got what they say in the muso world is serious chops. She graduated from uh, Boston's Berkeley College of Music. Uh, let's play a song from this album. Let me do one more, and then we'll come back and give our reviews. This is UVVP. It's got a cameo in there from Buck Meek on Sound Opinions. Every time I hear a song That is UVVP from the new Illuminati Hotties record, Let Me Do One More. Jim uh, mentioned Sarah Tudson. She is a, um, a skilled producer and songwriter. Uh, she has a wide range of interests musically, and you can hear a bunch of them in that song. A little surf guitar, yeah. a little bit of that Hal Blaine, Be My Baby drum beat, a little pedal steel. There's a spoken wordless coda. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're throwing a lot of Which elements it, into these songs. That, that coda kind of uh, feels like a 50s uh, voiceover to me. Yeah, yeah. It's strange. Exactly. I, I had Illuminati Hotties as uh, one of my buried treasures uh, a while ago. And uh, one of the things that I loved about it is that, you know, it's that whole box of chocolates thing. You know, you never, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. You know, every song is its own thing. And she's very much enamored with the idea of making each song its own little island and living within this uh, bigger complex known as an album. She's still making an album. And I think the thread here is that her... um, She's going through some uh, transitions in her life. There was a breakup in her life, apparently, a personal breakup. Her mother died. There was also a a big change in record labels. There was a, a, a question when this record would come out, hence the title of the mixtape that she put out, uh, Free IH, this is not the one you've been waiting for. She was sending a message to her fans, while I'm working this thing out with my label, I'm putting this thing out. Well, and even the title of this album, Let Me Do One More, it's like, please, uh, may I have another? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and then this whole idea of Let Me Do One More, that's the final line on the record. It's her basically, her, but it's said in kind of a, a downcast mode. She's kind of, saying i'm going through all this turmoil in my life but yet i want to do one more i yes i want another opportunity to do this so there's this kind of frothy veneer that you get you know there's a girl group bubblegum influences there but man she's got this uh, vulnerability that's in there too and the range between that hushed vulnerability that she brings and the the brasher stuff she you know there's some genuine punk anthems in here it's pretty wide i'm impressed with sarah tunson she's a do-it-all kind of person uh, a musician artist and uh, this is probably the first record where i think you know she's sort of been able to express her full talents in a pretty 
sounds like a high level recording studio. Could be her yeah. well, bedroom for all I know. Knows she's, what she's know, doing. She knows behind what she's the doing. Board. And, so I, and now she's running her own record label on top of right. all that. I was waiting for you to mention that. Yep. Do love this record though. Uh, I wish I loved it as much as you. Um, you know, there is a real dichotomy here between the songs for the fans she calls My Little Shredders, right? <laughs> In the tradition, you know what she got from Gaga, right? The Little Monsters. Yeah. She calls them the Little Shredders. Um, in full-on punk mode, it's like there's shades of Courtney Love there, but it's nowhere near as good as Amal and the Sniffers, which is an album I'm still high well, on from a couple of weeks ago. But th- that record is sort of like it's going to be a flamethrower the That's whole way what it through. Is, yeah. And this record is not is, that. Is, She's, well, she calls this Tender Punk. Tender right? Punk okay. is, is the name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So. Smart pop punk melodic yeah. indie rock uh, for people under thirty. Um, you know, look though, as far as those fifties melodies and girl group uh, touches, uh, the regrets do this better. I like her in slow mode, Greg. You know, I, I'm I'm less impressed with the little shredder songs than I am with Need. Hector, kickflip, the sway, growth. I tried not to move. Too much of you. Did you find it in the Those five of these 12 songs, to me, are really intriguing. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, uh, quiet, introspective, mm-hmm. dramatic. Uh, I think that's her true mode. Um, you know, the punk stuff, I, I, she wasn't bringing enough for me. But, you know, maybe I'm just biased against producers making solo albums. Hello, Brian Eno. <laughs> How can you not love a song named Joni L.A.'s number one health goth? Come on. I do kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, of all of the faster songs, I do like the one in tribute to the health goth. So that is what we thought of the Ray Black and Illuminati Hotties albums. Now we want to know your thoughts. Let us know by leaving a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. We love putting our listeners on the air in segments just like this. New messages. Hi, guys. This is Jana calling in from Tucson, Arizona, regarding songs about breaking free. Um, a few years back when I was 43, I decided to completely blow up a life that just wasn't working for me anymore. Uh, I quit my job, I sold my house, and I moved my stuff into storage to take a solo around the world trip. Um, as I was planning my trip, I discovered I had a theme song for this, and no surprise, that fits your Breaking Free theme quite well. And that song is Ego Illusion by the soundtrack of our lives, particularly in the line from Nowhere to Everywhere. side note I'm still disappointed that they're no longer a band but anyway um, I'd been listening to Sound Opinions for years by then and uh, as I traveled from South Africa to Australia over nine months uh, I realized how important your show was to me especially when I had it stacked up against you know 50 other podcasts that I was listening to while I was traveling 
Um, I don't know you guys, of course, but um, your voices really became friends to me over that year. Uh, so when I came back to the States and got settled and employed again, um, I was very happy to start supporting the show and um, continue to do so through Patreon. And I love all the little extras that come with that membership. Uh, I truly appreciate the work that you and your staff do every week. Thank you so much. Hello, Sound Opinions. This is Kerry from Queens, New York. Love your show. The song of freedom for me is Till the End of the Day by The Kinks. I listen to this song multiple times a day after going through a difficult period, and it always gave me hope and a feeling of positivity, I think it's a great freedom song. Jim from Cleveland. Pepe Castro had a band called Balance in the 80s that had an excellent pop song called Breaking Away. Give that one a try, maybe on a desert island jukebox. Hey guys, this is Ryan calling from Wheaton, Illinois, and I've got an idea for a show. In, in the past, you've done shows about the great beginnings of songs and the great endings of songs, so I thought it was time to do a show about the great middles of songs. Now, now, now for people not steeped in song structure, you'd have to start by explaining that that's called the bridge. Right? When it is done right, it, it, a great bridge can really elevate a song, and for some songs, it's the bridge that people remember. So uh, thanks guys, keep up the good work. I'll talk to you later. Jeremy Shatton from An Earful in New York City. And I loved your interview with Jimmy Jam. Really fascinating stuff. And I was thinking about my favorite song, and this might be kind of basic, but What Have You Done For Me Lately by Janet Jackson. distinctly remember sitting, standing actually, at St. Mark's Sounds with a record under my arm, and that song came on and everybody just started bopping. I do not remember what record I bought that day, but I remember hearing the Janet Jackson song and thinking, wow, she's really gone and done it. So thanks again for a great interview and talk to you guys later. I saw her standing in the sun I was bewitched by all her features one of my favorite ghost songs is by the English folk pop singer Wesley Stance, or John Wesley Harding as he used to be known. And the song is Sussex Ghost Story. Um, it's a beautiful, haunting, revenge ghost story. Love your show always. This is Dan Williams from the Seattle area. Thanks a lot. No more messages. Thanks to our listeners for calling in. We love hearing from you. To leave a voice message for us, go to our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got one of the pioneers of New Wave, uh, IRS Records head Miles Copeland, uh, for an in-depth interview on his new memoir. And this week on our bonus podcast, we have more from our recent interview with Jimmy Jam. Talking to some of these giants from behind the scenes in the music industry yes. is just a, a treat. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. 
Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cotton. 